You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. our talk called Sciences from Mars, Theologies from Venus. Um, my name is Bonnie Zahl and I am a psychologist by training and I've been long interested in the relationship between science and religion because of my personal faith but also because I am trained in what we might call the scientific method. And my co-presenter today is Bethany Solaretter. Hello. And Sure. Uh, I'm a theologian who looks carefully at the sciences, particularly evolution, and the questions theologically that it raises, like suffering and did God use death to create. And I fell into it totally by accident. I wanted to be a historian, and then the questions how to think about is the Bible true in light of these questions kind of sucked me in, and I've never managed to find my way back to history yet. So today in our talk, we're going to... Oh, the other thing about Bethany and I is that we work together. We share the same office, and we are both doing work on, um, we actually both um, do kind of grant consultancy for a foundation that is particularly interested in this interface of science and religion. So we're gonna give you, so the, um, an outline of our talk today, we're gonna give you a brief sort of historical view of what you might hear sometimes in the media called the science and religion conflict. Um, and then after that, we are going to share with, I'm going to share um, about my views on how psychology and theology might relate and how I've tried to put the two together. And then Bethany's going to share her thoughts from her own research in, on the topic, a theological topic of theodicy. So, according to the Pew Research Forum, 59% of Americans believe that in general there is a, sci a conflict between science and religion. Now, what this statement fails to really capture is what is science? Is this, this, is this kind of thing? And also, what is religion? As if there's this one thing that religion is. And so, my question, and the thing that we wanted to tease apart today is what is religion, what is a science, how do they go together, and, and actually to hear from you to, to ask whether you think they're from two different planets. Actually, I have one more point to make which is that as part of that survey that you saw earlier, the 59% survey, the Pew also surveyed, um, looked at the statistics for people who profess to be religious or to hold some religious belief. And they found that um, only 30% of Americans who profess to have religious belief say that science is in conflict with their own religious beliefs, which means there, um, there's the 60% of the people who don't think there's a conflict, but there is this 30% who do. So what does that conflict look like? So, as I said, people use the word science all the time as if it's this monolithic entity, but it's not. And even though people like to say that there's the scientific method, it's not really the scientific method because methods differ across different sciences. And actually, science is not, even though there's this thing we call science, it's, you know, it's physics, it's chemistry, it's biology, it's neuroscience. They're all different kinds of sciences. And within each subdiscipline within science, there are different methods. So, um, some people, and, and the um, Oxford English Dictionary defines science as the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world 
through observation and experiment. It's a long sentence. Take-home messages, observing the natural and physical world through observation and experiment. But even that's not wholly accurate for some of the sciences. For example, a lot of physics is extremely theoretical and not, it can't really be experimentally tested. A lot of um, quantum physics is like that. Um, you can't really observe or do experiments on creatures that have become extinct, nor do we survive, live long enough to actually measure how species evolve. And in some cases, like in the psychological sciences, some of the things that we study can't really be observed, like consciousness or certain kinds of thought. So we might be able to find proxies for these concepts and these ideas, but given how hard it is to define something like consciousness, let alone observe it, it's even harder to ex do experiments to study it. So what we mean by science you know, in the public sphere is not as simple as, as, as simple as it seems. And likewise, theology or religion. Well, first, there are many different religions in the world. And then within each religion, there are many aspects and different theologies, different dimensions. And so, and even just as there isn't a scientific method, so too is there not one method for studying theology and religion. Um, historical theologians look at doctrines through the historical development of them. Analytic theologians use the methods of philosophy, really, to kind of tease apart theological doctrines and statements. And then, of course, biblical studies folks study the Bible using their own particular methodologies. So when people talk about the conflict between science and religion, what they mean? Is it some aspect of science that they perceive to be in conflict with some aspect of religion? And maybe you don't even buy into the fact that they're in, in conflict. Maybe you're the 30% who do, of religious folk in, in America who don't think there's a conflict narrative. Um, you're the 60% of the religious folk in America who don't think there is a conflict narrative. Um, but given that there is this 59, this perception that 59% of the American population sampled in the Pew survey do think there's a conflict between science and religion, what does that really mean? And so with that, I'm gonna to turn to Bethany, who's gonna give you a brief history course on the rise of the conflict narrative in uh, American Christianity. Sure, and by brief, we mean very brief, like 10 minutes. We're not actually even going to get to C.P. Snow, who is mentioned in our uh, thing. So we have this assumption of the conflict. If you ask people on the street, they're gonna say, yep, there, there's a conflict. These things are against each other. But how did we get there? Because historically, this is a myth. So even with a hot button issue like evolution, if you look historically, it didn't start as a conflict. Edward Davis, um, who's at Messiah College, talks about how 20 years after the publication of The Origin of Species, if you looked at the opinions of practicing scientists in America, he could only find two that actually didn't accept evolution. All the practicing scientists accepted it. So what happened between then and this point now where you have the vast majority or a majority of people thinking that there is this conflict both amongst practicing scientists and in the general uh, population. Now what there was, was there was controversy about the meaning of evolution, even if they didn't accept it or if they, or rather they did accept it. So what does it mean for us to evolve? Is this some notion of overwhelming progress? Is this something that we can manipulate as happened in the eugenicist movement? Or is, is this something that comes into conflict of faith? So you have somebody like Charles Hodge, who was the president at um, uh, Princeton, and he writes this long book called, What is Darwinism? And his last line is, what is Darwinism? 
it is atheism. And he comes at this really, really carefully. He does it respectfully. He comes, he, he investigates the philosophical and theological underpinnings of how it was being presented. But somebody like Hodge is being offset by people like Asa Gray, the Harvard botanist, uh, James uh, Dwight Dana, another geologist who's very prominent, or even somebody like B.B. Warfield, who helped write the fundamentals, from which we now get the, the term fundamentalist. So conservative people accepted evolution as well as uh, rejected it. And, and so there wasn't a uniform opinion. But there were a bunch of different factors that, um, that ended up making it more likely for people to accept the conflict narrative. Because when you look at how historians read the history of science, they say, okay, well, continual conflict is, is one way that we can conceptualize this relationship, but there are so many others. You could talk about partnership, dialogue, dispute, support, patronage, or independence, as, as Bill was talking about, this sense that, well, they really don't have much to do with each other. But when you start looking at how these things played out, you find things that uh, throw a spanner in the works, we'd say in England, sort of, um, a wrench in, in, the, in the spokes. I don't, sorry, I've been away too long. There was pattern in the works of, of this idea that there was always conflict. So one easy one is that the Catholic Church for centuries was the largest supporter of scientific discovery and endeavor. Um, you have something like everybody brings up Galileo. Well, that's an obvious case of where the conflict got out of hand. But actually, Galileo was great friends with Pope Urban VIII. Uh, Pope Urban VIII even wrote a poem in praise of Galileo prior to the conflicts that led to um, him being condemned for his views. And in all of these historical points, things like personality, Galileo's arrogance, for example, had a lot to do with how he was received. Um, the conflict, the 30-year war that was happening at the time, uh, put undue pressure on the Pope to sort of conserve uh, a certain point of view in the Catholic Church. So you have all of these other pressures that are, that are sitting on these historical events where people have created <coughs> this conflict myth. So in short, uh, it, it's complicated. It's, it's, not, it's not a straightforward story. But the way that we understand conflict today has been highly shaped by two particular authors. Uh, these two guys, John William Draper, wrote a book called The History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science, 1874. Um, and then Andrew Dixon White wrote another one in 1896 called The History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. And these two guys literally rewrote the history books. Um, I won't go on about the factual errors in them, but what happened was that these things sold like hotcakes, and they were widely read and, and accepted, and then everybody knew that there was a conflict, whereas prior to that, not everybody knew that there was a conflict. So just to give you a sense, this is from Draper's preface. The history of science is not a mere record of isolated discoveries. It is a narrative of the conflict of two contending powers, C.P. Snow, not the first guy. The expansive force of the human intellect on one side and the compression arising from traditionary faith and human interests 
on the other. This has been going on for a long time. <coughs> Two key changes helped this sort of view take root. The ground was prepared. And one of them was uh, the emergence of higher criticism. Anybody know who this guy is? His name is Julius Wellhausen. Does that make it? Okay. German guy. He's great. So what, what he did was um, in the 19th century, particularly as it moved along, all sorts of new discoveries were being made. People were discovering ancient Near Eastern artifacts, things like the Enuma Elish or the Babylonian Genesis, uh, Egyptian creation myths, and they were going, wait a second, this sounds a whole lot like Genesis. And so you, have, you also have people finding different texts of the New Testament or of the Old Testament that say different things from the good old KJV or some of the other translations. And so there's suddenly this question of what's the real Bible and what do we do with uh, these, these other stories that sound so much like our Bible. And so the emergence of what's called higher criticism. And, and much of it is so good and so valuable. But one part is that, that came out is people just started saying, well, it's not certain anymore, so we can dismiss it. Or we know this is just another story, just like those other ones. And these were coming across the ocean to America at the same time as Darwin's books are coming over. And so they end up getting linked in the popular mind in really important ways. And you have it starting with somebody like uh, Julius Wellhausen, Documentary Hypothesis, the idea that the first five or six books of the Bible are written by four different authors, you know, and that, and that this is all compiled later on. But you also have things like Frederick Strauss writing The Life of Jesus. Again, this sort of critical challenge of what the Gospels present. And it's translated by Marianne Evans, AKA George Eliot. So these are, these are being um, distributed through, through popular parts of culture as well as in the sort of academy. <clears throat> and I just wanna give you a, a, a sense of how this was received in North America. So the next slide I'm gonna show you was uh, a cartoon drawn by a guy named Ernest Pace. And he wrote, drew this in 1917. Right after, you know, amidst World War One, this is this is how they're receiving higher criticism. So you can see here's the German U-boat, made in Germany, modern higher criticism, Strauss, Valhausen, Frank, and it's sitting in the seas of unbelief, ready to take down the Bible. It's the Judas II. Uh, little cares he how many of God's little ones are aboard the ship. And so this is largely characteristic of many evangelicals' responses to higher criticism. At the same time, you have people like um, Thomas Henry Huxley, who is uh, known as Darwin's bulldog. He was a brilliant publicist of Darwin's ideas. And what he does is he, he goes out and he's trying to professionalize science. He's one of the few people who's not an ordained clergy person in the sciences, and he wants to make room for himself and his friends who are skeptics. And so they systematically start working um, to change the culture so that the culture will look to science as the authoritative place rather than to the church authority. One of the ways they do this is by pushing clergy people out, pushing amateurs out. This is when science becomes something that smart people do elsewhere and it isn't in the home anymore, and it isn't 
something that is acceptable uh, to bring your belief to the table in. And they did things like, they took over the examination boards, uh, they made sure that in new universities, not Oxford and Cambridge, which are lost causes, um, but, but in the new universities, that their people were the ones appointed, sat on millions of committees, really worked for this sort of cultural change so that science would become a profession that was free in its own right. And they were wildly successful in doing that. And so this is, this is sort of the, the powder keg, if I can call it that. Everything, everything is set. And in, in the Americas, this becomes, um, the, the trigger point happens in 1925 uh, about the Scopes trial. How many of you have heard of the Scopes trial before? Okay, most of you. So I won't, I won't spend too much time belaboring this. John Scopes is tried for teaching evolution, um, Dayton, Tennessee, and he is not even sure if he actually did. He's just standing up because the ACLU won a test case and the local businessmen are like, hey, it'll bring business down, great. And it does in droves. And it becomes especially a big deal when William Jennings Bryan, three-time de Democratic uh, nominee for the president, uh, decides that he is going to be the head of the prosecution council. And at the same time, Clarence Darrow, who is the most infamous uh, sort of trial lawyer, particularly because he defended uh, two young boys who just killed, a, killed another kid in cold blood, thinking they were really smart, could get away with the perfect murder. And he defends them and gets them off of the sentence of a, of a death, um, death sentence. So he's really infamous. He's, he's, a, he's also a famous agnostic. Um, and, and they end up in the most uh, celebrated moment of the trial, sitting face to face with Brian being the expert uh, witness for the prosecution and, and uh, Darrow just going for the jugular on his beliefs and that sort of thing. So this has sort of um, sat in the American mindset as part of the history. Just You can see sort of the circus that comes out of it. People hanging signs, read your Bible. And so suddenly you have this, you have Bible on one side, you have the agnostic or atheist skeptic on the other side. Uh, and this was perpetuated in the, the news that came out of it. Um, and here's another great cartoon that the same artist does in 1924, so right beside this. So um, the higher criticism, which would say something like the Bible is not infallible or man not made in God's image, gets tied in with uh, evolution. And, and this is a clear allusion to Darwin's descent of man where he talks about human evolution. So instead of that, you have the descent of the modernists working their way from Christianity all the way down to agnosticism and atheism. And as I'm losing my voice, I will quickly turn it back over to Bonnie. Um, and we just wanted to talk about some of the sort of modern manifestations of the conflict. So some of the ways that this plays out today is uh, some of the anti-vax um, rhetoric can be tied to religious belief. It's not always, but it can be. No blood transfusions, uh, climate change denial, or young earth are some of the ways that uh, religiously motivated people have, have rejected science and its authority. So with that, I'm going to turn to this, which is about psychology. Um, 
I don't have, has, have any of you seen this image before? Yeah. yeah. Right. So this is part of the um, tracks, the four loss from the Campus Crusade hands out. And it's really a description saying the fact of the gospel is the engine. When coupled with faith and feeling is what drives our kind of spiritual lives. But the train will run with or without the caboose. You don't have to feel the right thing. You don't have to feel that God loves you. The fact is that God loves you, and you, God loves you, and you have to have faith in that. So this is kind of the image of that I've seen in sort of attitudes towards psychology and the psychological science and really feelings and, and things that are not objective, and objective meaning sort of uh, what's in the Bible. So that was one view, one kind of Christian view. This is sort of my view. And um, so this is kind of the exploratory part. So, wait, wait, wait. so I'm a psychologist. I use methods from the psychological sciences to study human behavior and cognition and emotion. And some of that is, some of the things I find interesting are actually just people's religious experience. And so I study, how, how, do, I, how do I link psychology and theology together? One of the ways I've done that is I've just used methods and theories from psychological sciences to help me better understand and describe religious experience, some of which are, you, there's some sort of theo theological accounts of, and also people's just reports of their religious experience. So that's sort of how I do it. There's, you know, I, I, my own research was on anger at God, and, um, but I think there's a way for me to understand the relationship as I use the science as a frame to study certain types of knowledge about people. And the flip side, which is what Bethany does, is she's a theologian, so her frame and her methodology and her theory is come, it comes from, from theology, but she does so with a psychologically accurate understanding of what people are like. So these are kind of, I think, two ways of getting at it, getting at this sort of relationship between um, theology and the psychological sciences. And um, add to that, this is my personal, you might ask me, how, well, what does my personal um, faith, my personal belief come into that? I suppose I would bracket that outside of it, so it doesn't change the psychological scientific method that I use, but it did, uh, there is kind of this component of, what I, I have an acceptance of a certain metaphysical stance about the world and, and also sort of theological understanding. Um, and with that, I'm gonna share some research findings with you on just exactly that, a psychological study of religious experience. And I'm gonna share a lot with you about a cluster of research projects that a colleague of mine has done, her name's Julie Exline, she's a professor of clinical psychology at Case Western, and she's also a trained spiritual director. And there are not very many of those issues in the past, but her research program, um, some of which I draw on in my own research, is on spiritual struggles. And the background to this is that there's been a lot of sort of reported benefits of being religious on health and well-being, but there's also obviously a flip side to that because, and part of the reason we're all here today is we recognize that human experience and spiritual experiences aren't always positive. And Julie was really interested in this concept of spiritual struggles. And so through her work in interviewing people and talking to people and then doing her, um, um, designing sort of questionnaires that tap into different types of struggles, She's identified that um, spiritual struggles are really multidimensional, and that they, um, she, uh, 
there are six, in her work, she's identified six dimensions to, to, of spiritual struggling. One dimension is, she calls it divine struggles. So that's kind of um, frustrations or anger at God, just struggles that are related to God. Another dimension is interpersonal. So people will sometimes report um, struggles that are related to other religious people, like people in their church or their religious leader. Another dimension of struggle is moral struggles. And um, some of these are reports of feeling um, that they're wrestling with sort of moral, um, moral behaviors, and they're failing to do the things they're, they're supposed to do. There's a, a moral aspect to it. Uh, another dimension of spiritual struggle is struggling with ultimate meaning and purpose. So questions that are about well, what, are, what am I for, what is life for, those, you know, these ultimate meaning questions is another way that, where people struggle spiritually. Doubt about their faith or doubt about the existence of God. And lastly, this is a very small percentage, but it is definitely there, is that sometimes people report struggling with demonic forces, like being attacked, spiritually attacked, or feeling influence of, of um, evil, evil forces or, or Satan. So the couple, next couple of points down, some of you might be interested in, she's basically done a, a series of correlational studies measuring these six dimensions of spiritual struggles, which she does so using a questionnaire that she developed, but with um, validated with, from, with several thousand, well, I don't think several thousand, over a thousand participants. And she's basically turned these, these experiences of struggles into statements that people will rate whether they've experienced it or not. And then she relates people's scores and their, you know, onto other dimensions of interest like depression or anxiety or something else that she's also able to kind of cap, capture on a questionnaire. And she has found that seeing God as cruel, as having a view that I think God is cruel or God feels really cruel to me, is um, correlated with divine struggles. So she found that if people view God as being a cruel God, they're more likely to report anger at God and other struggles with God, and also um, concerns about God's disapproval towards themselves. She also found that if, you've seen, if people report seeing God as really distant and not really interacting with them or not really engaged with them, then they're more likely to um, report feeling doubtful of God's existence. And then in another study, she looked at these dimensions of spiritual struggles with personality traits. And she used um, the big five personality trait, which is a kind of measure of five dimensions of personality. And she discovered that basically there was a correlation between neuroticism and openness to experience with lifetime uh, frequency of religious struggles. And specifically that if you are more neurotic, if you score high on the scale of neuroticism, you're more likely to report um, spiritual struggles. <laughs> and also, if you um, identify as being someone who's really open to new experiences, you're also more likely to report experiences of spiritual struggles in your life. Um, in another study, and if you're interested, I can give you this proper citations for all of these and you can look them up, but interpersonal religious and spiritual struggles correlates with reports of loneliness. So people who say that they struggle with religious, they have um, interpersonal religious spiritual struggles, i.e. struggling with people in their church or in their community or disagreements with their religious leader, those people are also more likely to report feeling lonely. Um, she, also, she found that um, Compared to heterosexual participants, homosexual participants reported more spiritual struggles. Um, and sort of in, if you look at sort of frequency of reports and, and the extent to which people report these sorts of struggles, she found that the most commonly reported struggles are interpersonal ones. So those of you who are heads of churches, take note, because 
Um, you know, these are struggles between religious, a person has with other religious people. Um, so the sort of in the in descending order of you know um, frequency report, it's interpersonal struggles followed by moral struggles, struggling with the extent to which they're performing to their perceived moral standards that are imposed by the religious um, sort of beliefs, um, doubt about God and doubt about God's existence, doubt about their faith, um, and then and then uh, struggles related to ultimate meaning, and uh, the least uh, commonly reported one is demonic struggles. Um, she also found that divine struggles, anger God, frustration with God, um, struggles with God predict depression, anxiety, and anger. Um, and in another study, she also looked at, so there's this experience of struggling with your faith and with different dimensions of it. She um, did a separate study that looked at people's beliefs about why bad things happen. So she called them lay theodicies. And she found that there's, um, I'm not gonna go into that study, but there are also different ways um, people report how, of how they make sense of suffering in their lives, and there are different sort of types of lay theodicies that people report having. And one of those lay theodicies is to see that this bad thing happened because of good, there's a good God, but bad things happen. And that good God somehow caused that bad thing to happen. Um, and she found that that kind of a theodicy, that kind of a view of suffering and why suffering happens in the world is related to experiences of divine struggle which is in turn related to psychological distress. So there's this kind of path between the kind of view or theology, if you will, that you have, and it's, it relates to the kinds of ex experiences that you have that is then related to distress or well-being in other cases. So, but with all of that said, struggles are not all bad, are not all bad. And we also have some reports of this. For one, anger God, which is what I studied, for some people, it's a form of engagement, right? Think about it, when you're angry at someone, it still means you're kind of engaged in a relationship with them. And so anger at God is not necessarily a bad thing to be gotten rid of. Rather, it could be seen as a way of remaining engaged in that relationship, even if you don't like that person that you're engaging with. Um, so the way to think about anger at God is not so much, is anger at God a good thing or a bad thing, and should we get rid of it or what? But to see it as part of a person's sort of growth trajectory or a, a, a narrative or a story that, that, that's part of their longer-term um, trajectory of their spiritual life. Um, some people get angry at God and then exit the relationship. They become atheist. Some people get angry at God, and, for some, and through other means, they, they cling on to that relationship, and there's a growth process that happens. And so the, the important thing is the struggles aren't all bad, and sometimes they're actually a sign of engagement. Um, there's been some, a little bit of research showing that actually doubt is predicted, predicts better mental health outcomes, um, religious doubt, I mean, um, especially in cons when considered alongside other religious and spiritual, um, religious and spiritual struggles. So what I mean is, um, there's a way that we do this, our um, statistics, where you put in a, an outcome that you're interested in, and you have a bunch of different things that you think might predict or be correlated with this outcome. And you throw them all in, and you look at how they independently are related to this outcome. And what Julie has, seen, has found is that it seems like when you put all of these different dimensions of struggle into the equation, and you look at the outcome, religious doubt actually seems to be predicting better mental health as opposed to worse mental health when all of the other ones are taken into account. 
spiritual struggles and anger at God also are valuable because they have signal value. So when things go wrong in a relationship and you get mad at your spouse, it tells you there's something that's not quite right in that relationship. There's, whether there's an imbalance, you know, I get mad, you get your mad at your spouse because they're not taking, the, you know, they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, it's a signal of something that's not quite right. And rather than repressing it, we should actually be using anger as, a, as an indicator of um, something that's not right, that's worth looking at. And so, um, anger and other negative emotions, and actually strong emotions really, have important signal value that sometimes is overlooked. Um, and lastly, there's some, some theorists have argued that a mature and integrated faith actually allows room for struggle. So, um, when, you, when somebody has a mature and integrated faith, there's room in there to consider these questions um, and to not really have answers and to be in that state of struggling, and that's okay. And then, of course, we have um, stories from the Bible and instances where pe many people struggle with God. Job is like the clearest example, but Jacob wrestled with God, and the psalmist expressed strong negative emotions. So struggles are not bad, but I think there's a tendency to think they're bad because it's uncomfortable and because it's unpleasant and because it makes you a difficult person to be with and, and to deal with. And so we want to it, sanitize our Christian lives so that there are no struggles, but that's not reality, and in re reality, struggles are not all bad. So, I think I've, Simeon and I sort of bounce ideas off of each other all the time, and I think uh, going back to his talk today about on sin, the way I, as a psychologist who is also a Christian, the way I see psychology as a as a set of as a set of theories and then as a set of methods to understand our internal lives and our behaviors and our feelings and our thoughts, is that I find psychology to to be a useful way to describe our hardware, i.e., we have a brain and there are ways in which neuro, you know our brains work in certain ways, and also the operating system. And what by that I mean, we all have memories, we all, we all have, a, you have an attention span. Information goes into our minds and is encoded in, in certain sort of ways, certain ways that are kind of general across all of us. We have, we have the same kind of hardware. And, um, and also this kind of way, this operating system, which is how we, information goes in and is processed and stored. And one of the things that we know in psychological research is that while in the past people have really liked to separate cognition and emotion as these separate things, where like cognition is kind of the rational information processing and emotion is this affect and more physiological, actually in um, recent years the research has shown that cognition and emotion are actually really interrelated and intertwined and that um, affect and emotion influences cognition. So it's not that you have, you just sort of think of things in this blank, uh, it's, like a, it's, not, it's not that you think of ideas in abstract terms, but that all of your information processing and your cognitive um, processing is colored by emotions. And so basically affective states affect our information processing, encoding, retrieval, memory, and judgments. And, um, so this question that I, I might have raised at the beginning of, you know, what is, is this is conflict of science versus religion or, or science versus theology or the scientific method versus the method in the humanities. I personally find them, this, this question is 
as a false dichotomy because I don't think they're dichotomies. I think they're both valuable and important ways to describe our experiences and our existence. And I think the, the point at which they converge is the question of how people change and what helps people. And I think in both theology and in psychology, the, the, there is part of, there is within both of them a desire to help and to help people change. Um, so, um, this is my work in progress. <laughs> I don't know that I want to keep using this train mechanism, but going back to this idea of, you know, this idea of the, 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 the train will run without the caboose, I actually think that uh, theology has much to contribute as a driver, I know, because it provides a frame for us to interpret our experiences. But I think this is the point that I really want to, I think emotion, affect, and cognition are actually the wheels that get it going. And so um, the shape and the direction and the movement of our spiritual lives are totally, to me, driven by our emotional states and our affective states. But all just this hardware, like it's the hardware and the software are there. Um, and so I, you know, I don't, I don't think of, um, I don't think of feeling as the caboose. I think of feeling is almost not just the wheels, but the tracks, and um, it, it's the basis of how we understand theology, how our own theologies develop. And faith is also sometimes talked of as this, as this abstract thing that you either have or you don't have. But if I ask you what is what is faith to you, you're gonna you, well, most likely you're gonna describe an experience to me. You're gonna describe faith feels like this, and so it's, it isn't this abstract thing that either you have it or you don't have it. That's way too simplistic. But the, again, the the, po the point I want to drive home is that faith is also predicated on feeling. You you feel it when 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 you say I have faith in somebody. You're feeling something about something. And so with that, I'm going to turn back to Bethany to talk about suffering and theology. Yeah. Um, thank you, Bonnie. That was helpful. And I, I just, um, she was talking at the end there about how theology can be a driver to these other points of, of cognition and affect. And that's kind of what I want to do with some of my work. So now I'm going to go from safe territory where I somewhat know what I'm talking about, to stuff where I'm vision casting for the future work that I'd like to do, and I really have no idea, so please help me out. <laughs> so a little bit of uh, the, the branch of theology that tends to deal with suffering and the problem of evil is called theodicy, and that was uh, coined by Leibniz, and it is just a combination of the Greek word for God and the Greek word for justice, theodk. And you can think of it in uh, John Milton's phrase of justifying the ways of God to man. How do, we, how do we make sense of what God does in the world given our world? And so typically they'll divide it up into, he divides it up into moral, moral evils, you know, I kill my friend, uh, physical evils, a rock falls on my friend, or metaphysical evils, this sort of struggle. Um, and, and he comes to the conclusion that, well, this is just the best of all possible worlds. And since his time, various philosophers have been doing the same. They've been looking at questions of evil, questions of a suffering, and trying to understand how we can put this together. But it tends to be a very dispassionate, critical analysis that is meant to uh, convince the person who is a skeptic 
uh, and, and typically a professional philosopher to boot. So what I would like to do is, is develop what I'm, I'm trying to call compassionate theodicy. And this has, amongst other things, a new goal. And first, it's, it's not directed towards the atheist or agnostic skeptic who is challenging the existence of God, but is directed towards believers who are going through a struggle and are like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, uh, which includes myself. Most theologians are trying to work out their own personal issues, so uh, just for, <laughs> for full disclosure. So for, for people who are suffering in, in various ways, not necessarily believers, um, also not presenting a solution, but presenting the context for meaning making. So one of the things that theodicies are famous for is saying, oh yes, I can tell you exactly why God, you know, allowed the Holocaust to happen or some terrible thing. You sit there going, ah, you know, and in five simple points, we'll, we'll just solve that. So what I would like to do is, is something that's not, not trying to tie up all the bows, but actually is setting a backdrop, uh, giving props to the person in, in intellectual terms so that they can build uh, what they need in, in their situation. And it would draw heavily on psychology and, and other sciences. So whether that's looking at geology and the reason why we have earthquakes and why they're necessary for an earth-bearing planet, or looking at Bonnie's work on the anger of God or somebody like Jamie Ayton at Wheaton College who looks <laughs> at human uh, response to natural disaster from psychological views, trying to draw on that to say, let's just make sure that, that whatever theodicy becomes, it doesn't become something that's distinctly unhelpful uh, or, or ongoing, damaging in an ongoing way. So a quick example of this would be, there's a classic example drawn uh, from William Rowe. Uh, his objection to theism is, imagine a fawn who is caught in a forest fire and it doesn't quite die in the forest fire, and it's been several days exposed and suffering. And he sort of mic drops this and like, show me your God and your meaning, you know, and, and walks away and everybody's like, uh, and they go on. And so the classical arguments, well, there's the importance of gnomic regularity. You know, we have to have regular laws or else science wouldn't work, or we have to have regular laws or else, you know, um, God just couldn't help it without upsetting every moment of, of, of the rest of our lives. Um, that it's the necessary context for human free will, that you need creatures making their own decisions along the way, otherwise you have, uh, you know, chaos. You, you can never have a free world where we are autonomous choosing beings and therefore can choose to love God. Uh, or you have Leibniz, well, this is just the best possible world. There's no way a fawn in the fire could be avoided. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't mean for this to be humorous or so <laughs> The voice, it, it does, but actually, like, in a way, you can look at these and you say, well, intellectually, these are strong arguments. They make sense. They're logical. But they're, they're missing. They've dropped the caboose. Like, they've, they've dropped the idea that what we feel about a situation has something to do with the cognition we bring to it. So um, a, different, a different approach, and, and again, this is completely in development, uh, would, would be to start by looking at the love of God. What does it mean to love the world? What would it mean for God to love that font? Does that necessarily mean that God 
will put it out of its misery or miraculously heal it? Or is there something about the co-suffering of God with the fawn, something about redemption of the fawn, something about this beautiful world of risk and vulnerability where God's love for the world means giving the other freedom to be that has a place in our discussion about the fawn and the fire. Um, uh, I just said everything I wanted to say. So the co-suffering, the eschatological angle, and, and the Christological angle, the, 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 this, this world is cruciform. There is the suffering on the far side of the suffering. There is this redemption and, and resurrection. So the, those, those are just uh, thoughts that I have here, and it gets so much more complex when you start talking about humans and, and free will and moral choice. But I think we can do better than say, well, it's the prime importance of gnomic regularity. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. So, but it, yeah, I know, okay. Again, theologians are trying to work out their own issues. In this case, it's my, my issue with my discipline. Um, but what, what we, so that, that's where I want to move. I want to see if this can be done. Uh, so starting September, I'll be going full-time for two years. Right. And we'll see I mentioned that Bethany and I work together while she's leaving me at the end of the year. I'm sorry. I'm going to do a, 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 post, a postdoc so that she can write this book about compassionate theodicy. Which will be sold at Mockingbird in three years. <laughs> <laughs> I take at least 10 years. Oh, okay. I'm not busy. So, this is my last slide. And after that, I want to open the floor up for discussion because I'm really interested. We're, we think at our desks a lot about science and religion and how they relate. And I think at my, in my house and in my, at my office a lot about how science and psychology and Christianity relate. And I'd like to hear from people who are not in my office and who are actually have real experiences and have real experiences of their own suffering and their own lives and, and that of in their, in their ministries to share. So I'll, I'll close with this and then open the floor for discussion and questions. So the way I, look, I see it, the way we both see it, is that science, and then like what Bill is saying, science is important. It, it's a hugely important and valuable way of understanding the world. It provides certain kinds of descriptions and certain kinds of explanations. And it's, those explanations are actually mechanistic terms. But we're, there's really very little that science can say about what it means. There's, it offers very little in, 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 the, in meaning terms. Um, Christian, Christian theology and religions are meaning frameworks. And so they, religion um, can help to explain or provide a meaning framework for explaining um, our lives and the events in the world. And Christian theology explain things in terms of the frame of the redemptive work of God through Jesus Christ in the world. So what I think science can do is it can help me get a picture of what that broken world looks like and the possibility of what a redeemed world or person might look like, what healing might look like. It can describe both, both that. It can describe that. Um, I think science can provide hugely valuable descriptions that can be a kind of challenge point, but also um, a point for, for engagement with theology in a way that can enrich it. Um, so if we understand that, for example, emotions are hugely important in the, in the way our cognitions happen, what does that mean in terms of how we think about God, or what does that mean in, in, um, in terms of, um, I don't know, the role of our human rationality? Um, so I think there are ways in which they can contribute to each other, and, and the way Christianity has contributed to the sciences, it's just been interesting to look at religious and spiritual experiences of people, and, and um, that's one of the things that it offers. 
I'm, I'm afraid we need to end because we want to respect people going to other sessions on time. Uh, thank you.